you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 11. And if you're in a sound booth, I left my thing on, and I'm going to need two AA batteries, even though you already tried to give them to me, Tim. I apologize for that. If you want to run them up to me, that'd be great. John chapter 11, I'm going to read the whole thing to verse 45. This is going to be an addition to the series Unbrandable, and the reason it's going to be an addition to the series is because of the tragedy that happened this last week, and um, I wanted to preach a whole sermon on the revelation of God's providence and how God's providence is unbrandable. It's a difficult, um, dangerous doctrine that we have to understand more deeply than sometimes the way we want to. So let's look at the text here. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters went, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees the world by the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After this he said, after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go also that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead and in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. And now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Jesus reached the place, Jesus, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell down at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her weeping also, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then Jesus said, and then the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Batteries for me. All right, well, we'll do this. We'll do it. We'll do it stand-up comedy style for a little bit. Okay. Um, so the reason I, I actually wanted to insert something in this series is because I didn't plan on doing a week on providence. That is God's governance of the world. Providence means to see before, but the word means to govern because you see before, right? And um, we had a funeral yesterday for Simon, and um, he was adopted son to the Ndoye family, and he died in the car crash on Middle Point Road where three young men were killed. And um, normally when we have funerals and you get to the end and the pastor speaks, um, usually they're going to say something like, they're going to say something like, hey, this person was older and... Um, let's talk about their virtues, you know, what was good about their life and how God's grace worked towards those ends. And um, because death kind of feels natural because it's expected. You know what I mean? Like we all kind of expect to die at some point. But when somebody younger dies, that's not really the case. People, people don't feel this quite the same way at funerals, you know? The question that tends to be in their mind is that um, something terribly unnatural has happened, that... Um, the, the question is not, what virtues can I emulate, but why did this happen? This is so wrong. This is such a terrible thing that's happened, right? Um, and um, there's this, uh, there's this um, scene in The Princess Bride, if you've seen that old movie, where the, like, the little boy is listening to the story being read, and it's not going the way it should go. You know, Wesley's not getting the girl, and so on. And he says to his grandfather, he's like, he's like, Grandpa, I, I, this, this year, this is wrong. Like, it can't be like this because after all the hero has done, right, like, there's, there's no way it goes like this. That's not fair. And the grandpa says, life isn't fair. Who told you life is fair? Where is that written? And the, and the boy doesn't argue with the logic. He just goes, grandpa, I'm telling you, you're messing up the story. Get it right. Right? And, um, you know, it's funny, but it, it's also precisely how human beings feel when things happen that we believe providence should have prevented, right? You're getting the story wrong. Get it right. And the simple branding that God is going to do the maximal good, and because God is good and has control, is all-powerful, that means God is going to do the maximal good, which is going to mean life's gonna, life should be good for everybody, right? If I could make another poster, it'd be like, life's going to be great for everybody. And that is not true in the sense we mean it when we say it. And because of that, it can really cut in to the faith of people. One of the things that happens when 
um, like tragedy strikes or pain comes in our lives, times where we tend to question um, the sovereignty of God. I don't know if you realize this, but it took me years in Christian ministry to realize that um, the, quote, best arguments against the existence of God, especially the God who reveals himself in Scripture, do you realize they're all the most intensely emotional ones? They're not all the most intensely rational ones. Like, the problem of pain is the most enduring one. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, then bad things shouldn't happen. That is a really—it's actually a really terrible argument. I don't know if you realize that. Like, none of you would would let anybody interpret your life that way. If if somebody said to you, listen, you're a competent person, and you're a good person, and this thing happened that you had control over, and you didn't stop it, you're terrible. You'd be like, you know the first thing about my life. You don't know the 57 goods I was trying to create. You don't know my history of that person. You don't know anything about my life or what I'm doing. I don't know what, who you think you are or what you think you're doing. That's what you would say or how you'd feel. Now, you might, be, you might be more polite than that. But you would realize that's a terrible argument. And you would realize that if you were an emotionally deep and humble person that the reason that person is saying that is even in their better moments they would know that that was a terrible argument. They're just really hurt and angry that you didn't come through for them in a way they wish they would because their life isn't turning out the way they wished it would. Right? I mean, think about this. What are the three great arguments in our day against the Christian faith in Christ, right? It's A, the problem of suffering, the most emotional argument there is. The hiddenness of God. Why doesn't God show himself more if he wants us to believe in him, right? Which is connected to security and abandonment and belonging, deepest core human need, right? And sexuality, longing, being able to embrace what longings come out of me, what I feel is, is most central and basic inside of me. And if we focus on our most internal, sensual, interconnected beliefs. Sexuality is going to be at the root of that. And if I can't express that, then I can't be a person. I can't—it's an intensely emotional argument. None of those arguments are any good. Rationally, they're not good arguments. But they're the ones that the vast majority of people in the church and outside the church struggle with. Because the thing is, they could be defended rationally. Defense of those arguments isn't inherently irrational, but that's not why they're the biggest arguments. They're the biggest arguments because of how we feel. And one of the main ways we see them as so, um, as so persuasive is because when terrible, painful things happen, which lead us into the moments where we could doubt the providence of God, the human mind is designed to work in a certain way because we were designed to survive, Right? Like, we tend to feel afraid. Our settled, our emotionally settled understanding of what the world is like just got rocked. Right? 17-year-olds with lots of potential, lots of future, who are wonderful people, they're supposed to live. Right? And people who drink and drive should hit trees and die. Or older, sick people, especially if they're mean, should die. Right? That, this is not the way the world's supposed to be. I'm supposed to get 70-plus years. Right? Right? If you're like 20, you think you're going to live to the singularity. That like, we'll be able to extend life as older as you get, and you'll live to 10,000. You know? What happens is when that view of the universe that we think we believe in gets shattered, right? Without necessarily presenting itself as fear, our hearts just get enveloped with fear. And when we're afraid, we don't do our best abstract rational thinking. What happens is, is we turn to our intuitions. We turn to our quick thinking, our settled way of and our intuition is going to give us an answer right now, right? And um, it's going to say, this is true. And it's not going to be a super rational truth. It's going to be a really expedient truth. And then what's going to happen is our heart, because of that fear, in order to protect the fact that we have to act right away so that we can believe in that expedient truth that our intuition just shot up, 
it lays anger over it so that we can be absolutely certain about what we're going to do. You know how like when you get angry and you're arguing with somebody, you like feel, you, you just know you're so right, and then you sleep on it twice and you realize you were like half right? You know, and that you probably need to apologize, right? That, that's what happens. So, you, so like you're, you're, you're afraid, you, have, you feel like you got to do something, so intuition supplies an immediate actionable thing to do, and then anger enters in, and so you feel totally certain and the reason why your, your body, your neurology works that way is because, like, in a lot of those cases, you've got to do something right now. And you've got to jump into action. You can't live in indecision. You have to be decisive. But the problem is, is that that process that's meant to help us in moments of crisis that produces action does not produce accuracy. And if you allow that emotional response in tragic moments, make you feel like, now this is the—I I mean, I've, I've, I've talked to people who have had somebody die— who were believers for a long time, and, and they just like fall off like faithless. It's just like God, like God, I'm just, God doesn't care. God didn't stop us. Listen, do you know how many children starved to death the day before your loved one died? And you knew that. Like, so in that, now that your loved one died, God can't possibly love anyone. Do you see how that, that's just emotional thinking? Because if you were being rational before, you would have said there was no God. No, no, when it hurt you, when you were in pain, you let your—the funny thing about this is, is that oftentimes people think when they're hurt and they think the most obvious, simplistic thought in the world, they actually think it's the first time they've become sophisticated enough to think this deep thought that God can't possibly be good. And it just—when I was younger, like, I would agree with that. I'd be like, yeah, I mean, I I get that. I get that you're, like, struggling with it. Now that I'm, like, in my 40s— and I've buried a lot of people, and I've seen all kinds of people's lives go terrible, and I've had to walk through them through the emotional turmoil of it, and see them come out the other side with deeper faith and deeper trust in the goodness of God. It just doesn't affect me the same way anymore. I pay attention more to the human processes than the immediate human reaction that we think is rational. If we're going to actually have faith in the God who is really there, who is utterly provident— and sovereign, we have to understand how God teaches us about his sovereignty in a way that we can receive as the psychological creatures that we are. A way that will, that works in our hearts as whole human beings, rather than treating it like it's some kind of abstraction, while simultaneously trying to emotionally manipulate it. And the way God reveals himself to us is that he is a provident person that we cannot fully understand, but that we can fully trust. God reveals himself as a provident person that we cannot fully understand, that we can fully trust. You always ask, Nick, can't you make this simpler? This is as simple as I can make it without making it too simple, okay? He is a—he's provident. He really is sovereignly in control. He is a person. I'll get to that in a minute. That's how he reveals himself. He doesn't reveal himself as an abstract set of concepts or as a vague spirit. He presents himself as a person. That's fundamental to what he's revealing. We cannot fully understand him, and we can fully trust him. Okay, now let's look at a couple—I'm going to say three things like pastors always do, right? So the first is, is that God reveals himself as a provident person that can be trusted. God reveals himself as a provident person that can be, can be trusted. When you look at John 11, at every single turn, at every single moment, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. One of the things to notice about Jesus in the Bible is that there's no indecision. There's no— There's no wondering. He feels pain. Sometimes he feels sorrow. He'll weep 
with you. But he's not, he's not wondering. He's not unsure. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's utterly provident. Even in the man Jesus Christ, whatever limitations came with being embodied as a human being, even in that space, working in the will of God, right, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, as the God-man himself, he was utterly provident. He was sovereign. He knew what was happening. He knew what he was doing. He was unapologetic, even though he knew it was complicated, right? Now, um, one of the ways to think about this is that that means that he's trying to show us that he can be trusted. Now, in order for us to trust him, what we have to realize is that the central reality of his revelation to human beings about himself is his personhood. Because if you don't believe that the main thing God wants to tell you about himself is, is what he's like and who he is, then in the difficult moments where you want him to explain to you why things are happening the way they're happening, you won't be able to accept the actual Christian answer to why, which is God isn't going to explain himself to you. How many times have you asked God why? God, why is this happening? Now here's the question. Is the why the why of revelatory wisdom, or is the why the why of defensive explaining himself? That's the question. Same, same thing you say to a parent. Parent says, go do this. And if you say, why? Like, explain yourself to me. And if you sufficiently explain yourself to me, and then I come into agreement with you, then I'll go do the thing based on my own will because I'll do it. Or why? I totally don't understand the wisdom in this and why you're asking me to do it. Can you tell me just a little bit so that I can like move out in motivation towards this thing and not knowing that it's good, right? To which, if you say to the second one, because I said so, that's a sufficient answer. But if you say to the first attitude, because I said so, they think it's an insufficient answer. One of the things that you'll find all through Scripture is, is that God reveals himself, but never explains himself. The most egregious example of this is in the book of Job. Because in the book of Job, God is—Job and his friends have no idea what they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. They spend like 40 chapters talking, like talking about the providence of God. Well, God probably works like this, and doesn't God work like that? And you know God works like this, and don't you know God works like that? It's like chapter after chapter after chapter. Meanwhile, none of them have any idea— what happened in the first two chapters? No idea, right? It gets to the end where God finally shows up, and he asks Job all these questions, basically, are you qualified to question me? What he said, what he literally says in the first verse of it is, will you condemn me to justify yourself? That's the question. That's always the question. Will you condemn me so that you can justify yourself? When we ask God why in the defend yourself sense, what we're saying is, God, you are on trial, you defend yourself, and I'll judge you, and I'll tell you whether or not what you're doing is okay. Right? And, and you see, God's response to that is, <laughs> well, he probably doesn't do that. <laughs> but God's response to that is, either just, it's, well, it's just silence. It's not even to gratify that with an answer. No. Nowhere. So, and think about this. Jesus Jesus doesn't really explain himself. He, he says something enough for people to engage in faith. Look, I'm going there so that the Son of God will be glorified. I'm glad you weren't there so that you could be, you'll believe, right? So we, we know this is all happening, so on one level, the Son of God can be glorified and the disciples could believe. That's it. If you say, but Jesus, wasn't there another way that did involve Lazarus dying and Mary and Martha thinking you abandoned them and us all thinking that we were going to die and, uh, in which you could have been glorified and we could have believed? 
And the answer is, God is not going to explain himself to you. And you might think, but, but Nick, but my, my, this happened to me, or, or I was abused in this way, or so, somebody died, or this is what happened. You don't know how deep my pain is. Listen, the depth of your pain is actually not relevant to whether or not God is going to explain himself to you. The depth of your pain is relevant to God weeping with you. The depth of your pain is relevant to God's presence with you. The depth, of, the depth of your pain is relevant to what truths God would teach you in his wisdom about how he would reveal himself to you. But the depth of your pain is not relevant to whether or not God is going to explain himself to you. God is not the president. You have not, you have not elected him and delegated authority to him. He doesn't have to have press conferences. You have no authority. He's not going to explain himself to you. And he's probably doing that for your good. Because the attitude that demands God explain himself to us is precisely the opposite attitude of faith. And so what we need to understand is that God—this is why God doesn't reveal himself as a vague spiritual presence. Like, that might be good if, like, we go hiking in the Rockies every weekend, and we're like, we're already existing in this, like, psychological transcendental thing. We're like, oh, it's so beautiful, and then, like, I feel the God spirit with me. That's great. But when somebody dies or gets a terrible diagnosis or your spouse leaves you and it feels like it's out of the blue or like your world comes apart, this vague idea of a spiritual presence that you kind of liked when you were happy is gone. Because it's not the kind of spirituality that also provides you with a personal God who reveals his character, which allows to give you a fundamental foundation of what your life is built on. It's of no good whatsoever. Mere spirituality. Nor is mere abstraction. Like, there's plenty of people that, be, that believe Christian faith in this way and act this way in relation to the world. That if you just, if you put all the propositions together in a more, an ever complex way, and you understand things more esoterically and more completely, then you'll get the answer. And the answer is, no, you won't. No, you won't. Um, you'll think you know better, and you'll create more and more rules so that you'll try to get people to behave the way they should. You'll create legalisms for yourself and others. Or you'll get more and more tied in the circles and knots of the conclusions you've come to, not knowing what you didn't know when you reasoned through the things you did know. But you, you won't even realize anymore where you've speculated into nonsense and where you're rooted in something that's true. Right? What Jesus does with Mary is he says, take that belief that you have that there's going to be a resurrection on the last day, and I want you to connect it with me. Jesus says, my person, I am the resurrection of life. How certain are you that that like in the future, abstractly speaking, there is a resurrection. How certain are you? Be as certain as you're certain of me, he says. I am the resurrection of life. Your belief in me, my character, my person, is the basis and foundation of your certainty of that truth and all the truths that you'll believe in my name. So that God can give us his spiritual presence as the Holy Spirit who is God himself, who carries the full character of God, in the spirituality of our lives. And so it carries into all the truth and doctrines that we believe. All of that is rooted back to the person of God. Do you understand? And when we recognize that, um, we recognize that um, God is a—he's sovereign, and he's a person who reveals himself in a way so that we can trust him. Do you understand? So this, the second thing, sorry, is um, that God makes no sense to humans and does not explain himself. As you work through this passage, you see over and over and over again that, that Jesus does not make sense to anybody in it. There's no human person in John 11 that Jesus makes sense to. 
right? In the first several verses, the disciples, they think Jesus makes sense because he doesn't go, right? So, his, so they're like, look, because they're out in the desert baptizing people where very few people are. And so they get the call to come to Lazarus and the family, who, and Bethany's like, like, it's like less than a mile as a crow, crow flies to Jerusalem. There's people in Jerusalem that want to kill all of them, right? And he's, they're like, they're like, we get why Jesus isn't going to go because they're going to kill us and Lazarus doesn't really need us, right? And then two days later, Jesus is like, now we're going to go. That makes no sense, right? The disciples are like, God, Jesus, why would we do this? This makes, this makes no sense at all. And Jesus is like, listen, it does make sense if you're not a coward. It makes perfect sense. You're not thinking like me. And you don't know what's going to happen. So I get it. So he has to actually tell them, look, Lazarus has died. But this, he already said this, this isn't going to end in death, right? To which, what do the disciples take from it? Oh my gosh, we're going to see somebody raised from the dead. No, what they get from it is, we're all going to die. Right? That, I mean, that's, that's how Thomas, like, rationalizes going with Jesus. He's like, well, might as well go die with him, right? Now, listen, that is both crazy and profoundly faithful. Because the reason the disciples experience the person of Jesus— and through it, his profound spiritual presence, and through it, the profound doctrines that they learn about the resurrection from the dead, is because they trusted Jesus. They trusted Jesus enough to walk with him into a situation they did not understand, into his actions they did not understand, but they trusted him and believed him, even if he wouldn't explain himself. Right? He gets to the, the, the women, right? The women disciples, Mary and Martha. That doesn't make any sense either. They sent word— he waits two more days. He gets there four days after Lazarus is already in the tomb. So he misses Lazarus being sick. He misses the funeral. He misses the burial. It's like you have the funeral, you have the meal afterwards, the deacons are putting away the tables, and Jesus shows up. Why'd he even come? And neither of them really know. I mean, they both say the same thing to him. Jesus, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha just adds, but even now, I know God will give you whatever he asks. Related to this, um, Martha's the good guy in this story. Do you realize this? That they each get a story, right? And Martha is more faithful in the story. She goes out to Jesus immediately. She's not, ang she's not angry enough not to go out. She runs out to meet him. She says the exact same thing Mary does, but she adds a statement of faith and support and belief and trust to it, right? She's a little shaky at the tomb just because she doesn't want things to smell, which makes sense, right? Um, don't read Martha from the other story into the story. Do you understand? That's bad biblical interpretation. Okay, sorry, that was inside. So, I mean, think about this. Like, if— Why would Jesus stay away and then show up after Lazarus was dead? They sent for him when Lazarus was sick so he could heal him while he was sick. Now he's dead. They both sisters speak about death like it's basically final. He wouldn't have died. Now he's dead. It's over, right? Similarly, you see this with the, with the onlookers, like uh, the Jews that have come to mourn with them. So, so Mary— Mary comes out. Jesus says, where have you laid him? They're taking him to the tomb, and he just breaks down weeping really powerfully. Like he, he's, he's just—he's like sobbing, right? And the people are walking with him and Mary, and, he, and he's like—they're like, look at how much Jesus loved Lazarus, right? He loved him. And then it says, but other people mumbled, well, if this guy can make the blind see, couldn't he have kept this guy from dying? It doesn't make any sense. If he, if he loved Lazarus, he would have showed up. But if he didn't love Lazarus, why is he crying now? It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And, it, and you notice now, but see, we get, we get to be the, like, divine onlookers 
right? We are looking down after everything. And so for us, we're like, oh, the, those dense idiots. That's how the angels feel about you, right? I mean, <laughs> right? In a sense, like, you got to imagine yourself in that story. You have no possible mental conception that Jesus doesn't raise somebody from the dead. Just have you, you, as we, we have no mental conception of what God is actually doing in any of the doubtful providential situations of our lives ever. Sometimes afterwards, we see what happens and we're like, oh, okay. Or like, I wouldn't change a thing now that I know how this ends. But like, not even usually. Usually we have no idea. They didn't have any idea. If they would have known more of the story, it would have made perfect sense. They didn't know any of it. And so it didn't make any sense. And so all of them are left in the same situation. One of the beautiful things about the story is all of the main characters, the disciples, Mary and Martha, all choose to believe Jesus, to trust him as a person. You see, th there was already a, re a relationship of understanding the person's character and a relationship of love that existed between them and Jesus. And so because of that, the disciples weren't going to be left out of dying. And because of that, Mary and Martha were going to come to Jesus and, and they were going to tell him that they were upset and how disappointed they were in him. But they were going to trust him and listen to him and do what he said. Because they loved him. And they, know that, they knew that he loved them. That's, that's how they appealed to him, remember? The one, Jesus, the one you love is sick. They knew he loved him. There's no question in their mind. Right? And so, um, at, at some point in this, you have to get to the point where you, you, you pick one of these two choices. And there's only two, and it is binary, and there's no way to make this a both-and. Okay, some things really are either-or. And ultimately, when it relates to providence, every human being chooses one of these two. Either God doesn't make any sense, and I get that. Or God makes sense, and I don't get it. So you got to pick one of those two. One is unbelief, and the other is faith. And one isn't more intellectual than the other. One is simply to say, I believe that I understand the workings of the universe enough to know that if there is a God, he does not make sense. There is no, even in the divine mind, could not be any defense of this. And therefore, I get it. Right? Or the alternative is, is that, um, no, God is God, and he makes sense, and I don't get it. And, and, because that's true, it leads you back to this. God wasn't revealing his defense of himself in the first place. So the fact that God doesn't defend himself in a way that you get it actually isn't a, feature, isn't a bug, it's a feature. Right? What God has been revealing all the time was himself, his character, his person, who he is so that you would believe in him, that you would know him, so that you, and, and also so that you would enjoy him so that you would be delighted in and delight in him. You don't get that from a philosophy. I don't care how good your philosophy is. If you delight, the main delight of your life is your philosophy, you are a shallow person, okay? You may be intellectually very deep, but you're a shallow person. You weren't meant to exist that way. You were meant to be very deep, probably intellectually, but you're, you're meant to be deep in a lot of ways, right? And, and, and even if our, the depth of who we are is like this, this general sense of spirituality that we have, which I've seen people way overblow and pretend is like this huge thing. They have no idea what they're talking about. The, the centrality is the person of God. And if you know the person of God, you don't have to explain him. 
And what happens spiritually is rooted not in our esoteric experiences, whether or not we can feel his presence, but it's directly related to who he is in his character, his person, his love, his devotion, his righteousness, his goodness, his honesty, his honorability toward us. You have to choose. Now, the good news is, is that if you choose the latter, the whole world of God and his wisdom and his love and his presence opens up to you. And if you choose the former, you choose to self-reject and cut yourself off from so much of what God gives, not because it's not still offered to you, but because you make it inconceivable in your own mind and heart. And you leave God with worse choices to either leave you alone in that, which is the worst for you, or to utilize things that will reopen your mind, which are usually extraordinarily painful. Now, here's some applications of that point quickly. The first is, is um, you have, if you want God to explain himself, change your expectations. God isn't trying to explain himself. If you keep saying, if you keep praying like, I'll move forward spiritually when God explains himself to me, you're going to be praying that wide prayer for a really long time, and what you're going to be getting is a lot of silence both spiritually, like a sense of the Spirit inside you, but also when you read the Scriptures, you're not really going to find the explanation in there, because that's not what God's revealing. God's revealing himself. Think about this. Imagine you wanted an explanation for something, and the devil came and said, listen, I'll tell you every detail. Full disclosure. I'll tell you everything you want to know about everything. Do you tr will you trust me? And the answer is, no. Because no matter how much you tell me, no matter how much information you give me, it's still going to end up being a lie. Right? With God, the opposite is true. He doesn't say, I'm going to tell you everything. He says, I'm going to tell you what I'm like. I'll tell you what I'm like. And I'll tell you some things that you'll need to know. But at the end of the day, either you're going to trust me or you're not. Right? That's how he operates. And so if you change your expectations, you'll say, okay, God, I don't, I know you're not going to explain this thing to me. That is, defend yourself. But I, I want to receive your revelation of what you are like to help me, and to teach me, and to lead me, and to shape me, right? If you change your expectations, you'll get a long way. The second is that you don't get God, right? God is—you may be like, well, I, Nick, I'm a Christian. I get God. Okay, I'm, I'm sure. Look, I'm sure I do too, to a certain extent. But you don't get it. You don't get it. Like, you couldn't defend him. Like, one of the reasons why the, the problem of pain still persists is because we can't defend him. It's not because there isn't a defense. It's not because he's not right. It's because we don't get it enough for us to defend him. Like, I would, I, I would listen, I would love to write the definitive volumes on all the most profound emotional objections to the goodness of God, so that when I published my three books on sexuality, the hiddenness of God, and the problem of pain, those objections permanently disappeared from the history of the earth. And I bet that if I was capable of doing that, you would write me a seven-year sabbatical at my full salary to do it. There's a reason why we're not doing that. My limitations, and the fact is, that's not the way the world works. That's not the way spirituality That's not the way God works. Right? We don't get God, and neither do unbelievers. We can know God in his person and in his character. We can trust God. We can enjoy God. But there are certain definitions that we don't get God. Though getting, getting him as a person increases over time. Right? The, the third thing is we don't apologize for what God doesn't apologize for. We can weep with those who weep. We can even be angry with those who are angry. I'll get that in a second. But we do not apologize for what God doesn't apologize for. We don't apologize that God doesn't explain himself. We tell people, listen, God doesn't explain himself. 
That's really important that he doesn't. Otherwise, we'd all be brats. You know? Um, the fourth is co- uh, confusion is the place of revelation. Oftentimes, when we're saying, God, why, 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 why? Don't think that I'm saying, you're a terrible Christian. You're so, you're like, you know how like our culture, we're so, we're so afraid of being attacked that everything feels like a personal attack? This is not a personal attack, okay? This is, I'm giving you the key to that door in front of you that you've been banging your head on. Here's the key. Here's the key. You're talking to God about the right thing. You're just talking to him in the wrong way. Okay? That place of pain where you're saying, why, 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 where you're stuck because you're, you're demanding God explain himself, still talk to God about that thing, but say, God, I believe that this is in an episode where you want to tell me something about you. You want to—because the reason I'm asking why this way is because I don't trust you. And there's something about your person, your character, your heart, who you are, that I don't believe. And in place of that, I want the idol of your explanation of yourself, your defense of yourself, so that I can put that little idol there and I can believe in that, rather than really believing in you. How do I believe in you? That is what God wants to reveal. He will reveal that to you. He will show it to you. He wants you to know that. He will answer in one way or another. That's why he says in the Bible, you, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. In the right way, for the right reason, with real devotion, you'll find him. That doesn't mean you can make him answer for himself. Does that make sense? And then last is, those who find belief find personal help. So that's, that's the third thing, and I'm going to go through this a little bit quicker than I want to. But um, when you recognize God is trustable, but he won't defend himself, and you accept that, you accept his sovereign providence, you accept that that's the way God operates, you accept that you can't control him, you accept that you're not in charge, you accept that he is good even though in your mind you can't say it, you accept that, you accept his character, then all of his, because you, when you believe in him as a person, what happens is believing in him as a person, all of his personal capacity to help your real personal needs flows into you. And you can see this in this passage in numerous ways. So, um, for example, the disciples don't have any courage. They don't have real courage. They get it from him as a person. They believe in him. And when they, they don't want to go to Jerusalem, they're like, Jesus, don't you see, like, we shouldn't be going to Jerusalem. He's like, listen, there's 12 hours of light. Okay, listen, you have an opportunity to do what you think is right. That is like light. And if you are doing what you think is right, no matter how difficult it gets, you're not going to stumble morally, spiritually, personally. You'll be able to walk through it because you can see. But if you think, I'm going to protect myself and I'm going to go under cover of darkness so nobody can attack me, you're going to stumble. You're going to break down yourself. You're not going to know what you're supposed to do because you can't see what's there. You're not walking in the light. So even though you think there's protection under cover of darkness, under cowardice, there isn't. Courage is a light. Doing what you know is in God's will is a light. and You've got to walk in it no matter how afraid you are. So let's go, and if they kill us, they kill us. But you might see something amazing that you would have never seen otherwise. And they go, right? Same thing with, with Martha. She, her foundations are shaken, right? She's like, she's like the mom whose kid dies, and like, she's like, I don't know if I can believe in God anymore. She's like, listen, I, Jesus, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe my brother's life is not ultimately over, that he'll rise on the last day, and that— um, I can, and then I can hope that I'm, 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 I'm believing that right now. And Jesus says, you're right. You are right to believe in that. That is the right foundation. Now take that belief and lodge it in me. Believe it with me. I am the resurrection of the life. You see, root the doctrine in the person. Because the doctrine that people will rise from the dead, that there's another life, 
That's only true if Jesus rose from the dead. That's only true if Jesus is who he said he is. It's only true if God keeps his promises. It's only true if there's, an, in fact, a divine being who cares about his image-bearing humans who will fulfill all of his promises. It, like, it's a great idea. It's a wonderful doctrine. It's a good theological truth. But it's only so true as God is true. It is only so real as the resurrection of Jesus the Christ is real. It's all rooted in him and his person, who he is. Right? And the more you do that, the more he'll give you Something to put your feet on. Something to sink your teeth into. Something to make your heart live. Make you live on a pumping heart rather than just emotional adrenaline, right? It's true of provident emotion, right? Provident emotion is emotion that you govern. It's full. It's real. It's there. You're a person who can really feel deeply, but it's provident. It's ordered towards the truth, right? And Mary is full of emotion, right? She's sad. She's also upset. And when she comes to Jesus, it says that Jesus was deeply moved, and he was troubled. Right? A lot of New Testament scholars would say that word troubled has like an indignance. Some say even an anger to it. Like, this isn't okay. This isn't okay. Right? And you see, we need both of those things. We need to know that, because we naturally think if God is utterly provident, that he's not emotionally moved at everything that happens. How would that be emotionally possible? Because we're so easy to emotionally exhaust. Why, why would that be the case? If God knows stuff even before it happens, how can he be this moved? But, but that's why God comes, the Son of God comes in the person of Jesus Christ to show us how many things that we think would be true that we're wrong about. Right? So God demonstrates that he loves Lazarus more than Mary does, that he is right there with her. Right? But then he also recognizes that she's angry, and he's angry with her too. He's angry with her, right? Not angry at her, but with her. Because when people are angry, they want you to be angry with them. I've learned this from being married for 20-something years and having daughters. That like when, when my, the women in my life particularly are angry, I'm supposed to share in that anger. I'm supposed to be like, I can't believe that. That's terrible. I can't—that's that, so—like I'm supposed to kind of get in there and like do that with them, you know? And I, which I am really bad because I know that the anger of this man is not righteous. You know what I mean? I'm like, I can't. I can't play in that pit, you know? Um, but that's what we want. We want to feel like our anger is justified, and we want God to be angry, angry along with us. The problem is, is that if Jesus gets in there, and he's like, Mary's like, I'm just so angry about this. He's like, me too. And you could see Mary be like, who are you angry at then? Because <laughs> like, who does he have to be angry at but himself? He's the Lord. He could have kept this man from dying, right? You see, the thing he's mad about is the thing he does something about. That's how the narrative tells you. That's how John tells you what Jesus is angry about. It's the thing he does something about. Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come out. What's he angry about? See, he's angry about death. Death, sin, curse. You see, a lot of us believe, because we don't know what we don't know, that omnipotence means God can do anything, right? So if you can imagine a, a, a future in which, like, everybody believes in Jesus, but everybody's life is wonderful and— GDP is growing at 6.7%, and blah, 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 then that means God can do it. That's what omnipotence means. He can do anything. That's not true. That because God is all-powerful, it doesn't mean that he can make a, a circular triangle. It doesn't mean he can make a married bachelor. It doesn't mean he can make two plus two equals five. It doesn't mean he would want to. Right? God still is interacting with and making choices, and he understands the implications of each choice. In this passage, you might think, that's, that, Nick, that's blasphemy. No, it's in this passage. He literally says to his disciples, he says, listen, I am glad for your sake Lazarus died so that you'll see the glory of God. What's he saying? I'm not glad for Lazarus' sake. (laughs) 
I'm not glad for Mary and Martha, who are crying and thinks that thing I've abandoned them and I don't love them right now, for the three days or whatever until I get there. Right? I, I'm not glad about any of that, but that's the implication of me staying here two more days. Because I stayed here two more days, a bunch of bad things happened. And I had to choose between the two. And I had to do one and not the other. And when I did, I knew all the implications. And it doesn't mean Jesus didn't providentially choose it. He knew exactly what he was doing. He chose exactly what he wanted to do. He did exactly the right thing in the 12 hours of light given it. But that doesn't mean he doesn't know all the pain that's caused in the decisions that are made in this world based on the other decisions, based on the other decisions, based on the other decisions. And all that flows out from it. And he's mad about that. Creation is not supposed to be rebelling against its creator. It's not supposed to be a fight to bring harmony and good and flourishing to all things. It is we, it is sin, it is the curse, it is death that's destroying everything. And God is working in the midst of all of it to bring about good. And he knows. And so he's angry about it. He's angry about—let me think about this one. If you knew what I was really like, if you saw me the way God saw me, negatively, you would say, it is good to kill Nick right now and throw him into an eternal pit of hellfire, and that would be nothing too good for him, or too bad for him, right? And at the same time, if you saw me from God's positive heart and compassion and mercy, you would say, Nick is an image bearer, and he could be an object of divine mercy. And if the work of the Spirit flows through him and the providence of working and the work of Christ in his life, he could be redeemed and he could, he could be what he was created originally to be and something good could happen. And here's the thing. Both cannot happen at the same time. Right? You don't pull out—remember the wheat and the tares, right? Like, the wheat is sown and the tares get sown. They grow up together. And the, the servants are like, let's pull it out now. Let's go out into the field. Let's pull up all the tares, all the weeds, and then let the wheat will grow better. And, and the master goes, no, you can't do that. Because the nature of reality is, is that— the roots are all intertwined now. And you can't just pull out the bad stuff and leave the good stuff. It doesn't work that way. That parable is supposed to tell us that from God's divine perspective, he's not explaining himself, but he's trying to teach us a little bit of wisdom so we can have faith and understand his character. If he could pull it apart, he would. You understand? If he could pull it apart, he would pull it apart. He would save Simon and not have drunk drivers, and he would, like, make your dreams come true. And he, like, he would love to, but that's not reality. It's not reality. In his, in his sovereign will, he makes perfect choices, and he recognizes how you feel, and he is as angry as you about them. And so what he wants to do as you believe him as a person is direct your anger to the right thing to be angry about. Or if you're angry at God, God's, God's response to you is probably not, shut up and stop being angry. It's probably like, no, you're darn right to be angry. Under, if you understand this world the way it is, there is an unlimited amount to be angry about. But God is actually not the proper object of that anger. And to the extent to which he is, you can't trust him, and you can't receive all of the comforts and personal gifts he gives you when you trust him as a person. And all of that, of course, is rooted in emancipation from death. That he frees us from the, those of us who all our lives were slaves to fear. That was his goal. And when he does that, we can be freed from the fear of death, receive a real foundation on which to stand, know that he is with us weeping and angry as we need him to be walking with us, and that in the midst of that, he can give us the courage to face anything that we might fear so that we can see that which God will do. It's 12 hours a day.
We have to walk in it. Let me, let me put, put it this way in a little pithy way to end. Um, one way to think of why God isn't going to justify himself to you is because he came in the person of Jesus Christ to literally do the exact opposite. Do you understand that? Jesus came to justify us. Not himself. He didn't say, let me come into the world and explain to you why I am good and not bad. Let me come into the world and make it up to you. No. He came into a world where we needed an explanation for ourselves. Like if somebody needs to give an explanation for their behavior, it's us. A thousand times over. And what Jesus came into the world to do was not to give an explanation for himself, but to give a judicial explanation of atonement for your sin, for your lostness, for your death, for your hatred, for your unbelief, for your destruction of the ease by which he could have providently governed this world into flourishing in every way so that you wouldn't be angry about it. And his death is an atonement for the sin that we commit to destroy the ease of his providence because we rejected the fact that he made us to be his provident agents. And because we have completely failed in governing ourselves providently, and because we've completely failed in being stewards of our lives providently, we are providently under damnation. And he has come to justify us to live a perfectly provident life in our place, to have perfectly provident emotions in front of us, to show us what it looks like, and to be the utterly, perfectly, beautifully provident one to show us what it means to see in front of ourselves like the light would show and to courageously do what's in front of us to do with our feet planted on the foundation of a particular knowledge, which is the person and character of God. He came out of a devotion to you, not to explain himself to you, but to give himself for you and through that to you. And it comes by a recognition that we have to realize that we normally think God doesn't understand, doesn't make any sense, and we get it. And we have to completely convert to God makes perfect sense, and I don't get it. And the only way I can start to get it, get it is to put my faith in his Christ, Jesus, as a person, trusting in his character and seeing where it leads me, which is probable death and certain glory. God, as we, um, as we turn to you here, we pray that you would help us to embrace not a simplistic branding of your providence that speaks of a God that isn't real, but of the deep sovereign providence that is who you are, what you're like, how much you want to give yourself to us in love, how much you have worked, not to justify yourself to us, but to justify us to yourself. We pray that we would be able to turn around just 180 degrees on that and embrace you for who you are knowing that you longingly embrace us, weep with our pain, share in our anger, and have offered us resurrection and life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.